And welcome to the Relax With Me podcast. I'm your host, Sonia. And today I'm going to be reading a little bit from The Maine Woods by Henry David Thoreau. I'll read just a little bit to get started, and then I'm going to skip to an appendix, which I love. I'm so excited for this um, reading today. Before we get started with the story or with the reading, may I remind you to please like, share, support, and rate the podcast. That will help me to stay in business, if you will, and to keep producing these podcasts. So let's get settled and get ready to relax. Taking a nice deep breath, exhaling with a sigh, settling in and getting really comfortable and making sure we are ready to settle down, be still, and give ourselves a break, enjoying the luxury of being read to. This is a nice, relaxing read today, so let's get started. The Maine Woods On the 31st of August, 1846, I left Concord in Massachusetts for Bangor in the backwoods of Maine by way of the railroad and steamboat, intending to accompany a relative of mine engaged in the lumber trade in Bangor, as far as a dam on the west branch of the Penobscot, in which property he was interested. From this place, which is about 100 miles by the river from above Bangor, 30 miles from the Holton Military Road, and 5 miles beyond the last log hut, I proposed to make excursions to Mount Cotadine, the second highest mountain in New England, about 30 miles distant, and to some of the lakes of the Penobscot, either alone or with such company as I might pick up there. It is unusual to find a camp so far in the woods at that season, when lumbering operations have ceased, and I was glad to avail myself of the circumstance of a gang of men being employed there at that time in repairing the injuries caused by the great freshet in the spring. The mountain may be approached more easily and directly on horseback and on foot from the northeast side by the Aroostook Road and the Wasatequik River. But in that case, you see much less of the wilderness, none of the glorious river and lake scenery, and have no experience of the bateau and the boatman's life. I was fortunate also in the season of the year, for in the summer myriads of black flies, mosquitoes, and midges or as the Indians call them, no make traveling in the woods almost impossible. But now their reign was nearly over. Cudadine, whose name is an Indian word signifying highest land, was first descended by white men in 1804. It was visited by Professor J.W. Bailey of West Point in 1836, by Dr. Charles T. Jackson, the state geologist, in 1837, and by two young men from Boston in 1845. All these have given accounts of their expeditions. Since I was there, two or three other parties have made the excursion and told their stories. Besides these, very few, even among backwoodsmen and hunters, have ever climbed it, and it will be a long time before the tide of fashionable travel sets that way. The mountainous region of the state of Maine stretches from near the White Mountains northeasterly 160 miles, to the head of the Erstuk River, and is about 60 miles wide. 
the wild or unsettled portion is far more extensive, so that some hours only of travel in this direction will carry the curious to the verge of a primitive forest more interesting perhaps on all accounts than they would reach by going a thousand miles westward. The next forenoon, Tuesday, September 1, I started with my companion in a buggy from Bangor for upriver, expecting to be overtaken the next day, night, at some point 60 miles off, by two more Bangorians who had decided to join us in a trip to the mountain. We each had a knapsack or bag filled with such clothing and articles as were indispensable, and my companion carried his gun. Here I'm skipping to Appendix 6, titled Outfit for an Excursion. The following will be a good outfit for one who wishes to make an excursion of 12 days into the Maine woods in July, with a companion and one Indian for the same purposes that I did. Wear A check shirt Stout old shoes Thick socks A neck ribbon Thick waistcoat Thick pants Old Kossuth hat A linen sack carry. In an India rubber knapsack, with a large flap, two shirts, check, one pair thick socks, one pair drawers, one flannel shirt, two pocket handkerchiefs, a light India rubber coat or a thick woolen one, two bosoms and collars to go and come with, one napkin, Pins, needles, thread, one blanket, best gray, seven feet long. Tent. Six by seven feet and four feet high in the middle will do. Veil and gloves and insect wash or better, mosquito bars to cover all at night. Best pocket map and perhaps description of the route. Compass. Plant book and red blotting paper. Paper and stamps. Botany. Small pocket spyglass for birds. Pocket microscope. Tape measure. Insect boxes. Axe. Full size if possible. Jackknife. Fish lines. Two only apiece with a few hooks and corks ready. And with pork for bait in a packet. Matches, some also in a small vial in the waistcoat pocket. Soap, two pieces. Large knife and iron spoon for all. Three or four old newspapers. Much twine and several rags for dishcloths. Twenty feet of strong cord. Four-quart tin pail for kettle. Two tin dippers. Three plates and a fry pan. Provisions Soft hard bread, 28 pounds Pork, 16 pounds Sugar, 12 pounds 1 pound black tea or 3 pounds coffee 1 box or a pint of salt 1 quart Indian meal to fry fish in 6 lemons, good to correct the pork and warm water Perhaps two or three pounds of rice for variety. You will probably get some berries, fish, etc. beside. 
A gun is not worth the carriage unless you go as hunters. The pork should be in an open keg sawed to fit. The sugar, tea, or coffee, meal, salt, and etc. should be put in separate watertight India rubber bags tied with a leather string and all the provisions and part of the rest of the baggage put into two large India rubber bags which have been proved to be watertight and durable. Expense of preceding outfit is $24. An Indian may be hired for about $1.50 per day and perhaps 50 cents a week for his canoe. This depends on the demand. The canoe should be a strong and tight one. This expense will be $19. Such an excursion need not cost more than $25 a piece, starting at the foot of Moosehead if you already possess or can borrow a reasonable part of the outfit. If you take an Indian and canoe at Old Town, it will cost 7 or $8 more to transport them to the lake. Moving now to Appendix 1. Trees. The prevailing trees, I speak only of what I saw, on the east and west branches of the Penobscot and on the upper part of the Allagash were the fir, spruce, both black and white, and arbor vitae, or cedar. The fir has the darkest foliage and together with the spruce makes a very dense black growth, especially on the upper parts of the rivers. A dealer in lumber with whom I talked called the former a weed, and it is commonly regarded as fit neither for timber nor fuel. But it is more sought after as an ornamental tree than any other evergreen of these woods except the arbor vitae. The black spruce is much more common than the white. Both are tall and slender trees. The arbor vitae, which is of a more cheerful hue with its light green fans, is also tall and slender though sometimes up to two feet in di diameter. It often fills the swamps. Mingled with the former, and also here and there forming extensive and more open woods by themselves, indicating, it is said, a better soil, were canoe and yellow birches. The former was always at hand for kindling a fire. We saw no small white birches in that wilderness. And sugar and red ma maples. The aspen was very common on burnt grounds. We saw many straggling white pines, commonly unsound trees, which had therefore been skipped by the choppers. These were the largest trees we saw, and we occasionally passed a small wood in which this was the prevailing tree, but I did not notice nearly so many of these trees as I can see in a single walk in Concord. The speckled or hoary alder abounds everywhere along the muddy banks of rivers and lakes and in swamps. Hemlock could be commonly found for tea, but was nowhere abundant. Yet F.A. Michaud states that in Maine, Vermont, and the upper part of New Hampshire, and etc., the hemlock forms three-fourths of the evergreen woods, the rest being black spruce. It belongs to cold hillsides. The elm and black ash were very common along the lower and stiller parts of the streams, where the shores were flat and grassy, or there were low, gravelly islands. They made a pleasing variety in the scenery, and we felt as if nearer home when gliding past them. The above fourteen trees made the bulk of the woods which we saw. 
the larch, juniper, beech, and Norway pine were only occasionally seen in particular places. The gray or northern scrub pine and a single small red oak only are on islands in Grand Lake and on the East Branch. The above are almost all peculiarly northern trees and found chiefly, if not solely, on mountains southward. Appendix 2. Flowers and Shrubs It appears that in a forest like this, the great majority of flowers, shrubs, and grasses are confined to the banks of the rivers and lakes and to the meadows, more open swamps, burnt lands, and mountaintops. Comparatively, very few indeed penetrate the woods. There is no such dispersion even of wild flowers as is commonly supposed, or as exists in a cleared and settled country. Most of our wild flowers, so-called, may be considered as naturalized in the localities where they grow. Rivers and lakes are the great protectors of such plants against the aggressions of the forest, by their annual rise and fall keeping open a narrow strip where these more delicate plants have light and space in which to grow. They are the protégés of the rivers. These narrow and straggling bands and isolated groups are, in a sense, the pioneers of civilization. Birds, quadrupeds, insects, and man also, in the main, follow the flowers, and the latter in his turn makes more room for them and for berry-bearing shrubs, birds, and small quadrupeds. One settler told me that not only blackberries and raspberries, but mountain maples came in in the clearing and the burning. Though plants are often referred to primitive woods as their locality, it cannot be true of very many unless the woods are supposed to include such localities as I have mentioned. Only those which require but little light and can bear the drip of the trees penetrate the woods and these have commonly more beauty in their leaves than in their pale and almost colorless blossoms. Skipping ahead. The handsomest and most interesting flowers were the great purple orchises, rising ever and anon with their great purple spikes perfectly erect amid the shrubs and grasses of the shore. It seems strange that they should be made to grow there in such profusion, seen of moose and moose hunters only, while they are so rare in Concord. I have never seen this species flowering nearly so late with us or with the small one. Skipping ahead again, it appears that I saw about a dozen plants which had accompanied man as far into the woods as Chessencook and had naturalized themselves there in 1853. Plants begin thus early to spring by the side of a logging path, a mere vista through the woods which can only be used in the winter, on account of the stumps and fallen trees, which at length are the roadside plants in old settlements. The pioneers of such are planted in part by the first cattle, which cannot be summered in the woods. This concludes my reading from the Maine Woods for today. If you're still awake, and you enjoyed this particular reading, please let me know. There's a lot more to read from Henry David Thoreau. 
Hope you have a wonderful day.